that, that right here still exists in this very city, man. This is a very New York event tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And we're going to talk to some cats without whom there is no Marvel Universe. So get ready to be taken on a journey with, uh, with legends. I, I, my breath is taken away, and I'm humbled to be standing on a stage today with the three people I'm about to bring out. First and foremost, give it up for the man without whom there is no Beta Ray Bill, man, Walt Simonson. universe as we know it. Certainly no ex-movies. Give it up for the legend that is Chris Claremont. Steven Spielberg, um, uh, who's the other guy? George Lucas, J.J. <laughs> Abrams. This is the guy who's inspired generations and created characters that will outlive us all. Um, he, is in my estimation, and in many, I think inarguably, is one of, hands down, the greatest storytellers the Earth has ever known. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the immortal Stan Lee. <laughs> Please welcome first deputy commissioner Kai Falkenberg from the mayor's office of media and entertainment. Come on out, Kai. Legendary artist, writer, comic book creator, and native New Yorker, Stan Lee. Yeah. Reading from the Mayor's Proclamation, as the godfather of superhero storytelling, Stan Lee has captured the imaginations of fans across the globe with his iconic, humane characters that are an indelible part of American culture. 
We are proud to join with the attendees of New York Comic Con to pay tribute to your illustrious career and all that you have done to revolutionize the medium and art form of comic books. From the Incredible Hulk and Iron Man to Thor, X-Men, and Spider-Man, Lee's legendary characters and superheroes. <laughs> Continue to embrace humanity, attract followers the world over, <laughs> and enchant and inspire new generations of artists, writers, and comic enthusiasts. There is no better place than the largest pop culture convention on the East Coast to pay tribute to your achievements and creative legacy. We are proud to join with fans in applauding your leadership and accomplishments that have strengthened the foundation of the arts community in our city and beyond. Now, therefore, we proclaim Excelsior and Friday, October 7, 2016 in the city of New York as Stan Lee Day. <laughs> And you did almost everybody else. <laughs> so when you guys were creating your particular characters, and not just working on the characters that, you, that others did before you, but when you were creating your characters, did you ever, in any point, think one day these will be in a movie? We'll start with Walt. That's a really short answer. It never occurred to me in my wildest. It's so strange to see them, it's very cool, but it was never anything I gave any thought to. Back when I was doing that stuff, the industry was very different. There weren't things like any kind of reprints, the books, the redoing and reissuing of so much of this material. Back then, you got your comic, was on the newsstand for a month, if you missed it, that was the end of it. And so, you know, except for some guy in his mom's basement who was selling comics, out of there to help you out, you could get them then for about 25, uh, the days of yore. But basically, no, I, you figured it came out, and the month later it was gone, and that was the end of it. That was just, that's how, that's how I thought about it then. Now you, you see why Walt is such a great person to have on a panel. He gives a nice, complete response. If he had asked me the same question Kevin had asked, I'd have said, no, I never expected it. <laughs> you see, he, this man cares. <laughs> And that's why I'm here. <laughs> we just have a You were in the first Thor movie, so you got to see yourself in a Thor movie. But when you saw your character up on screen, what particular feeling goes through you? Well, I, you know, it was strange. I mean, that movie I had, Malachith was a character named Curse that I also invented. And so it was. You know, it was neat to see it. You're kind of rooting for them. At the same time, you know, they're bad guys. So I really know, I know Curse isn't really going to kill Thor because there's got to be a third movie. So probably that's not going to happen. But it was just neat. It was neat to watch. It was neat to see it. I had a little experience because my wife had a couple of characters turned into films as well. So we've kind of gone through that before. So 
I was probably more blasé than I should have been about that stuff. But it was still very cool. It was great to see it. And it was really neat in part of the movie, middle of the movie when Malekith gets zapped and turns half white and half black, which is the way I designed him in the comic originally. So it was very neat to see stuff that I had done, picked up, and used in the film in a way that was, was pretty exciting. Awesome. All right, Chris, just recently the new... Yeah, put it together. We're great. <laughs> X-Men movie we saw Rogue. She's yours, correct? As are like a zillion female X-Men characters and a lot of X-Men villains as well. Yeah. What, what was it like? There you go. What was it like for you seeing, and you've seen them throughout many of the X-Men incarnations on screen, what was it like for you to see characters you've created come to life? <laughs> it's really cool. I mean, you know, it's... Hi, Mr. Jackson. Yeah, your stuff's, oh wow, it's so cool. Uh, it's just the coolest thing ever. Um, you know, it's, what can you say? It's, uh, I, I've been a fan of Ian McKellen since I was a wee nubbin, sitting in the back, sitting in the back of the, of the cheap seats taking notes because I was an actor or wanted to be an actor and this is him coming to New York and do acting Shakespeare was the way and to have him turn around and play Magneto and just redefine him according to how I used to see how I was created I have created him involved and was like totally cool <laughs> but the really interesting thing was back in the day Stan and I went out for a meeting with a certain director, we were pitching store. We were going to pitch the X Men, and he just set up his new studio, and and we're sitting there in this big, big meeting uh, uh, meeting room, and Cameron, Jim Cameron, sits there, and he says, oh, "I've got a, you know, we're going to do the X Men. We're really excited about this. We're really happy. I've got this great new director. She's going to be perfect for it. I'm going to executive produce. She's going to handle it." You'll love Catherine Bigelow. She will do the X-Men the way it needs to be done. This is 1988. Now I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man, Cameron producing, Catherine Bigelow directing. And Stan smiles and says, I hear you like Spider-Man. And Cameron goes, oh, Spider-Man is the most cool character ever. And suddenly he and Stan are batting ideas back and forth. And Cameron's like, I'll direct it. I'll write it. That'll be my next project. And we're watching the X-Men just in <laughs> And it was the coolest 40-minute plot session I had ever seen. And within 36 hours, 25 studios who had a little piece of it were all jumping on the bandwagon desperately because Cameron wants to direct Spider-Man. We want our piece of it. And... Duh. He sank, a, he sank an ocean liner instead. But it was the coolest 35 if minutes. If only that movie had worked out for him, you know. Oh. I was still holding out for the first one, but, you know. It was just like, wow, Stan, you know, it's like, the X-Men fan, fanatic in me is going, dang it! And the Marvel fanatic is going, oh, please, 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 what's happening next? So this is, this is how he's great. Tell you one thing about the. Is this thing on? Yes. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Do I see an empty seat way back? I'm getting off the stage if there's one empty seat. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was wrong. Um, we'll have lost a precious asset. One thing about the name X Men that I will never forget. I might add something. When Kevin speaks to you, or any of these two geniuses speak to you, you're gonna learn something. You're gonna walk away more knowledgeable than when you came in. When I speak to you, I'm just entertaining myself. Because <laughs> I don't really, I can't remember facts. I can't hear what they say too clearly. I don't, I know I look like a perfect physical specimen. <laughs> I, I don't hear that well, and when they talk into the mic, 
It sounds like Bleach to me. But it, I'm doing my best. But anyway, oh my God, I love deep voice Stan Lee, man. The man, the man just interrupted me. My bad. I was thinking of Mallrats era Stan Lee. This is Marvel movie era Stan Lee. I will not interrupt. When you, when you sit down, when he stands up, he thinks it gives him some extra privilege. <laughs> And I know you all are desperate to hear this. I first came to our, our uh, publisher, Martin Goodman, who was not one of my favorite people. I, I came to our publisher and I said, I have an idea for a new series for you. And I told him all about it and I said, and I got a great name. We'll call it The Mutants. And he looked at me with that blank publisher type of look that they can get. And he said, Stan, you can't call the book The Mutants. Nobody knows what a mutant is. He had great respect for our readers and their vocabulary. <laughs> so I had to think of another name. I thought and thought and thought, and I figured, well, they have extra powers. I'll call them the X-Men. So I walked back. I said, Martin, how about we call them the X-Men? And he said, okay, that'll do. And when I walked out of the office, I thought, this demonstrates so how some people in big positions are idiots. <laughs> I thought to myself, if or my wife would say, don't ever say that, who else would you think to? Stop saying I thought to myself. Everybody thinks to themselves, but that's my wife. So I thought, what was I thinking? Oh yeah, I thought, if nobody would know what a mutant is, how would anybody know what an X-Man is? But the idiot okayed the name, and that was how the name came to be. Because I wasn't allowed to call you the mutants. And I'm sorry, I, no, I'm not really sorry I interrupted. I, I think I did a good job, but now it's easy. <laughs> It was pitch perfect. Let, let me say this. Um, comic books are a very collaborative medium, not just because there's a writer and there's a penciler and there's an inker and a colorist and a letter and so forth and so on. But when you think about it, there's a man right here who created a bunch of characters who then this man worked on as well and that man worked on as well. Each one of these storytellers added a few spokes to the wheel created by the, the person that went first. So what I want to know first from you guys, and then we'll get to you and you can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> what I want to ask you guys is when you, you I know, well, you started at DC, right? You began there first. That's right, when I came to New York first, I started there in 72. So, is that what they called it, 72? Yeah, so, no, it was in 1972, a million years oh, ago. Oh, the year 72. <laughs> I thought you were a long time ago. So when you went to Marvel, there, you had a, a definite knowledge of Stan Lee's work, even then, like in 72, the work that he'd done at Marvel for years and years. Yeah, and he said, I'm going to go to Marvel and show him I can do a hell of a lot better. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like going from DC to Marvel, and did appreciation for his work play a factor in the move? Well, when I was, when I was a reading, I read comics in the mid-60s when I was in college. And when I read them, um, I really read Marvel comics. I was a Marvel reader. And what happened was my freshman year, I, you know, I read comics as a kid. And then you get a little older and you kind of embarrass me reading comics. It's the old days. You embarrass me reading comics. You're supposed to become a grown-up comic books, maybe not. And so what happened was I was in the room with one of my friends, freshman year, and they had a comic sitting there, all really beat up comic book. And it was during the mystery... I think around 113, I'd have to look at the number, maybe 112. And it's the Grey Gargoyle Returns, it's his return, and it opens up, and I was a big Norse mythology fan before I knew anything about comic books. I read them as a kid, I loved them. I said, wow, this is a comic about Thor? And I was not a fan, so I didn't think, oh, he doesn't have a red beard, he doesn't have iron gauntlet, I didn't care. I went, wow, Thor! So I picked it up, and there's a shot of this flying Viking ship. It's Jack Kirby, there's a bunch of warriors on it. The next page, you turn it over and they're attacking a bunch of um, mini Jotunheim giants or something. And it's a little blurb and it says, We promised old Jack Kirby, and he was writing this, We promised old Jack Kirby, we let him have, have a couple of pages of action to start the comic, so here it is, enjoy. 
And at the time, I had no idea who Jack Kirby was. My thought was, wow, some fan wrote in and said, boy, I'd love to see a couple of pages of action. And I said, wow, that's, that's really cool. So, you know, about 15 years later, I reread re -read the comic. Oh, Jack Kirby, I get it. But I thought the comic was great. Uh, I found comics after, I found the Marvel comics after that. They were hard to find. There were DC comics everywhere. There were Marvel comics only in a few places. Took me a while to locate them. And after that, within a year, I was buying every Marvel comic there was. Now back then, that was like 11 titles, and they were about 20, 35 cents or something. So even in college, I could afford every Marvel title. So for about four or five years, I bought them all, I read them all. Sadly, I had more memory in my brain than I have now. And that means I remember lines that Stan wrote from 1965. I can't remember stuff I wrote yesterday. <laughs> so when the stage is set, the actors are in place. The play is about to begin, as Loki is about to fire the absorbing man to destroy Thor. I can remember that clearly, and I'm going, what did I say yesterday? What was I writing? I can't remember. So that's the stuff that I loved. I read it. I read all that stuff. Thor was my favorite. And when I got to Marvel, one of the first, the first color book I did was Thor. Len Wein was writing it, so I was not the writer on that. But I just had a chance to do Thor and the drawing. And I drew all this Jack Kirby, the giant buildings and the giant science fiction stuff. I totally loved it. I had a great time doing it. did it for a year. By that time, I was at Marvel, and I began doing other stuff for Marvel. But I really did it. I loved the stuff. I loved the Marvel Universe as it was at that time. And so it was just, and I knew it, I knew it cold. So it was a treat to be able to do it. It was a treat to be able to do other characters like the Hulk as well. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it. So it was really, I mean, I enjoyed the DC work. I don't mean to suggest that for a second, or as it used to be called, the distinguished competition. But I totally enjoyed it. I just had a great time doing those characters. And I, just, I, just had, I enjoyed it immensely. for those three issues, but I could do pretty close. So that stuff went in there, it just stuck. That's it's still there. It's so nice to know that a pro, a legend in the field, also feels about the work the way like I do. There are panels and lines that I'll take with me to my grave when my brain synapses fire their last. I'll remember uh, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, the first page, this would be a good death, but not good enough. Like stuff like that just haunts you in stages. That's a beautiful answer. What about you, Chris? First day you go to work at Marvel, do you, are you like, oh my lord, it's the man himself, Stan Lee. And did he bring you there? Was his work influential? <laughs> well, yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. Actually, what happened was, back in the day, this is <clears throat> the 60s, <laughs> before Nixon. Uh, my college would shut down for two months in, the, in January and February, ostensibly to send all of its students out for what they called field period, really to save heat. And you were expected to go out and get a job in your major field. Well, I was a political theorist, and coming from a radical leftist college in January of 1969, not a good <laughs> job prospect. So through friends, I got they said, would you like, a friend of my parents said, would you like to work for Marvel Comics? I said, okay, that's cool. I like writing. I love, I love, I've been hooked on the FF with, starting with issue 48. I walked into the, the diner, picked up the issue. Wow, this is cool. The coming of the Silver Surfer. And then the next issue, the coming of Galactus. Wow. And then the third issue, Reed and the FF fight off Galactus. And what is the first thing Reed does? He takes a shower and shaves. Reed, we're facing the end of the world. If we're facing the end of the world, one should look one's best. <laughs> and I need five minutes to think. I'm going, it's been 40 years, I still remember this. But the beautiful, th the most wonderful thing about that issue is Stan defeats Galactus on page 14. What are the last five pages of the book? 
Johnny Storm goes to college. So it's like, Earth faces annihilation by Galactus. We defeat Galactus, but the final scene is Johnny goes to college. That's 23 issues today, and that's just getting us to Galactus Arrives. The heck with beating him and sending Johnny off to college. So anyway, the phone rings. I pick it up. And it's like, hey there, trouble leader. This is Stan Lee. Wow. So I said, hi. I said, so I understand you want to work for Marvel. Yeah. I explain the situation. Well, we're a small company. We don't have a lot of employees. We can't pay a lot of salary. Oh, well, I'm a college student. I'm doing this for credit. We're not allowed to ask for salary. You're hired. <laughs> it is an employment philosophy, philosophy that is carried through to this day with, with open arms. <laughs> and that was it. I went into the office and like I do what all new hires do when they're just sitting around waiting for something to happen. I read all the back issues. So I'm reading a back issue and it's Sergeant Fury and it's Howling Commandos and Stan wrote it. At the same time, I'm proofreading because even though I'm a, a gopher, we, everybody had, jumped in to help when stuff was needed and we had to edit the issue to make sure the spelling was right. But I'm reading Nick Fury, the current issue was Nick Fury goes home to Brooklyn, meets his mom and his brother, who later grows up to become Scorpio, etc., 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 except I just read Stan's issue, The Trial of Nick Fury. Yes, Nick Fury was an orphan, Your Honor, but he has picked himself up from his past and has made a career in the U.S. Army. And I go into Roy Thomas, who is the editor, Stan was editor-in-chief and publisher, which meant he had the only door that you could close and actually lock. Everyone else had cubicles, but he was at home that day. And I said, Roy, we have a problem. And I told him, and Roy said, okay, call Stan. What? You found it, you call him. <laughs> what? Why are you still bothering me? Call Stan. Hi, Stan. Hey there, Trubalinger, what's up? <laughs> So I said, I told him the situation. There was a beat. Okay, fix it. Click. <laughs> Roy said, what did he say? He said, fix it. So Roy said, you heard him. <laughs> but, 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 you still here? Fix it. That was Marvel. You didn't mutter, you didn't fool around. You got told what to do. You went out and did it. So I fixed it. He was adopted. End of story, we moved on. That, Stan figured, he knew exactly what to do, which was to tell you to do something. If he hired you, you are, were obviously capable of doing it. If you weren't capable of doing it, bye-bye. And that was, that was Marvel. That was Stan. It was the coolest wackadoo place in the universe to work. And yet, every day, you learn something. And what you learned was how to be a professional, how to be a craftsperson, how to tell one heck of a story, and how to find the best artists in the world, get them to tell a crackerjack story, and unlike me right now, shut the hell up and get out of their way. <laughs> For you, you created these characters, you worked on them for a long time, and then one day other people came in and started writing for you, or not writing for you, writing the, the characters that you gave birth to. Was there ever a moment as the author of those characters where you felt like, no, I should only be doing this, or were you happy to share them with the people that worked with you? How come you ask them the easy I can't ask you, what's it like to work with Stan Lee? <laughs> I, I always considered myself about the luckiest guy in the world because we had such talented people, artists and writers. And I learned at an early age 
when you have somebody who knows what he or she is doing and they're talented, you let them do their thing. You don't put any impediments in the way. I mean, you have guys like this. You're lucky to have them. I need a story. Write me one. And I know whatever it'll be, it'll be good. I need you to write and draw one. It'll be a masterpiece, and it'll have ideas I never thought of. You came up with so many things. So you, you hire the best people, and you give them the freedom to do what they do best. And this is the first time I have ever answered a question and not tried to make it funny, and I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> add one thing to that. I don't know what Stan really thought, because I'm not inside his head, but I will say this, because I was a big Stan Lee fan. When I took over, I began doing Thor. I did Thor a second time in the 80s, 83 and 86, where I wrote and drew it for the most part, over about a four-year period. And during that time, after about a year in, this is my Stan Lee moment. I got to work with him. There's other stuff I've done that I really, I oh, I'm Stan Lee, I've done it. But this was my Stan Lee moment, where one, after about a year of doing this book, I get a letter in the mail. I open it up. It's on Cadence Stationery or Marvel Stationery or whatever the company was at the time. And in it, written in blue Sharpie, it says, Dear Walt, Thor is, you keep getting better and better on Thor. Don't know how you do it. Don't stop. Excelsior, Stan. I'm done. <laughs> This is in blue Sharpie. I'm not entirely sure how light fast it is. Like if it's in sunlight, it's gonna fade away. So I scanned it, I printed the stationery, I printed the letter out on other paper. That paper is framed just inside my studio, on a little wall right there as I go into my studio. I don't stop to read it every day, but it's right there. And it's right there because it meant the world to me. And it was really, it's what Stan did. He was encouraging, and he was completely out of the blue. Honest to God, at the time that happened, I didn't know Stan knew who I was. Because when I was in the office, Stan, by the time I was working at Marvel, Stan, I think you were on the West Coast by that time mostly, or not in the office so often. So I didn't really see Stan much in the office. I knew who he was. I had seen him. Hadn't really talked to him. So I was amazed to get the letter on any number of levels. But it meant the world to me, and I look at it more or less every day. And it encourages me, whether I'm working at Marvel or anywhere else, to try and do the best work I could possibly do. Thank you. This, there came a time in 1991 when Marvel and I parted ways, and the X-Men and I parted ways. And I was at San Diego, and I was not feeling at my best. I'm sitting in up on a veranda somewhere, I guess, at the convention center or the hotel, feeling sorry for myself. And suddenly this figure comes up and it's like, oh, hi, Stan. Chris. And I thought, why well, stand here? And he sat down and said, I really, really feel bad about what's happened. And he sat there and he's talked with me for about 45 minutes. In my memory, it's like three hours. I have no idea, to be honest. All I know is that Stan, out of nowhere, just walked over, sat down, and talked to me at a moment when I was feeling like absolute, at, at my absolute lowest. And was telling me how much he enjoyed the work and how sorry he was that he was not in a position to help. And to be honest, I didn't care. What mattered more than most was that Stan took a few moments to come over and share some time, share some interest, share some care with a fellow creator who was down in the dumps, who he knew. And in retrospect, I'm thinking, at that point, we'd known each other for 20 years, <clears throat> which is scary, because I considered myself a young punk, and I knew he was a young punk. But it meant, it's, it's a moment, as with Walter's letter, that I will carry with me for the rest of my life because 
It's a gratitude I can never repay. And it meant more to me than I can ever say, except I'm trying to say it now. But thank you so You've much. You've just repaid it by those kind words. <laughs> You wouldn't understand it. <laughs> oh no, I can give you a touching story. Uh, let's see, 21 years ago, a chubby young filmmaker from New Jersey uh, was writing a script for a movie And when I was done with the draft, I sent it to my friend and producer of the movie, Jim Jacks, out in Hollywood. And uh, he wrote back to me, oh, we, we called, we had no texting, no online or anything like that. You either talked on the phone or you faxed. You could do a lot of faxing in those days. So he got the script um, and he goes, there's a section here where the main character meets up with a comic book guru sorts. And he's like, it's kind of like the scene in, in American Graffiti with Wolfman Jack, it seems like. I said, yeah, that's, that's the base, that's where I took that scene from. And he goes, who do you see that as? And I said, well, I mean, like, in a perfect world, like, because I'd given a fictional name, but he had this legendary background. So I said, in a perfect world, it would be Stan Lee. And so uh, Jim Jacks goes, oh, well, I know Stan Lee. <laughs> and I was like, Hollywood is good. <laughs> they all know each other, like, in high school. <laughs> so I said, yeah, can I just change the name? And you get it to him? He goes, yeah, I'll give it over to him, man. And so I just changed the name, and basically I got to go deeper into your catalog. Instead of making references to comic books that didn't exist, I was able to reference stories and Marvel characters and stuff. And I sent it to Jim. Jim sent it to Stan. And then I heard back from Jim the next day. He was like, Stan read it. And I was like, what do you think? And he goes, well, I'll say to you what he said to me. Quote, I would never say this shit. <laughs> sweet is what I loved about it. He goes, you have Stan talking about some girl that got away. And I said, yeah. He goes, Stan doesn't want to do that because he's been with Joni forever. There is no one that got away. So he don't want to say it. It's not true to who he is. And I was like, that's fucking adorable. <laughs> he's married like you read about. So when we came to shoot the boy, he was out in Minnesota and he flew out to shoot it with us. Uh, the day I met him, it was like, you know, I've never, I've heard his voice uh, my whole life uh, from uh, Spider-Man, his amazing friends, he used to do the voiceover on him. Prior to that, even just in reading his work, you could hear Stan's voice. His voice was always clear from the page. It was a formality that I actually heard it with my ears during Spider-Man, his amazing friends, because he sounded exactly what I thought he would sound like, joy. And there I was standing in front of pure joy, unadulterated, in the middle of Minnesota. And he came to work on this dirty little movie of ours. And so you know, I'm standing next to my friend Walt Flanagan, the guy from Comic Book Man, and both of us are like, he's here, he's here, he's right here. And the first thing I said to him was like, Mr. Lee, thank you so much for doing this. He said, call me Stan. I said, I will. Um, <laughs> and I've never stopped. But, um, but I said to him, I was like, I, you know, because Jim had told me that thing, I said, I understand there's a piece of this that you don't want to say. You don't have to say any of this, man. You can say whatever you want and stuff. We'll work around and stuff, anything. And he goes, and he tells me, he's just like, well, I don't, I, I don't want to say this, uh, that there was some woman that got away because I think that would hurt my wife's feelings. He's going, but I don't want to make this bad for you. It's only your second film and you need help. <laughs> movie you made, it was black and white, at least this one's in color. So, <laughs> so he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the lines. I said, really? He said, yeah, it's just a movie. It's just all in fun. And I said, okay. And then, there, but he said, can I later at the end of the movie explain that I was joking? And so there's a scene in the movie where Stan runs into TS and he tells him that he made up some BS so that Stan could go home to his wife and not get in trouble. <laughs> we go to shoot that scene and it was one day he was out there. It was a beautiful day in terms of like, you know, I never expected to be a filmmaker and there I was, not only just making a movie, but making a movie with 
a guy, when making a movie with somebody that I personally looked up to since childhood, as a writer, as a creator, somebody who invented things, somebody who would make things, a maker. And there he is on our set. We wrap up, he does a perfect job, we get in and out of the whole thing. When we were done, he was sad that it was over because he's a ham and he likes to be on camera and stuff. But when it was, when it was all done, I said, thank you so much. This means the world to me. And he goes, uh, he goes, listen to me, spider friend. <laughs> because in the scene, we talked about that a bunch. He goes, listen to me, spider friend. If you clean up your language, you might go far in this business. <laughs> <laughs> now, having Stan and Mallrats has paid the sweetest dividends for the last 21 years. He lent me his legitimacy with that movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, I loved Stan Lee and, and said, hey, can we put him in the flick? And he deigned to show up. And for years, people in this community particularly would be like, you made that movie that has Stan Lee in it. You're all right. <laughs> I'm relatively sure there were a few times I was about to get beat up, and they're like, you put Stan Lee in that movie. You're all right. <laughs> and nowadays, everyone puts Stan Lee in a movie and shit, and they make a lot more money than Mallrats did. I'll tell you that. If you want to know, if you want to know why I love this man, and I know you've all been thinking, he doesn't have one redeeming virtue. <laughs> because he has given me the longest cameo I've ever done. He's a great director and he's great with people. I'm sure you can see just the few minutes he spent on the stage. Minutes that I should have been spending more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you notice. He's great with people. He's likable. He's easy to get along with. Stop. I, and once he gets a little more talent, maybe we'll get that. <laughs> By the way, you promised I'm in the sequel. You right? are. You're in Mallrats the series. Which I'm I get another. I leave here tonight on Monday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of next week. I start going out to pitch Mallrats the series, and you're a prominent figure in it. And they, they put together this board, the Universal Television people, a board of images of all the characters and the family tree and who's related to who, and there's a picture of you. And it's funny because everybody has a picture of who they were in 1995 and who they are in the present. And so you look at like... That's great. Yeah, it's very cool. You look at Shannon Doherty, and she you know, suddenly ages 20 years in the next picture. Jason Lee ages 20 years. Me and Jason Mewes age 20 years. Your picture... They, they put your picture from 1995, and then right next to it, the same picture from the... <laughs> 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 All right, let me got this. Let's get back into this. All three of you uh, stalked the hollowed halls of Marvel uh, for various periods in your career. Take those of us who've never been fortunate enough to see inside the bullpen, to, to stand beside the soapbox. Take us through an average day at Marvel during your era. We'll start with you, Walt. Did you ever work at Marvel, like in the bullpen? I, I never worked in the office itself. Um, I was I was always a freelancer. So what that meant, this is the old days when there's no, well, facts maybe, but that's not for art. And there's you know no Federal Express, no internet, no scanning. And that meant, my early days in comics, essentially, you had to live somewhere in or around New York if you were an artist. If you were established, like a John Buscema or a John Severn, you could live in Port Jefferson out on the island, or you could live in Colorado, and you would mail stuff in, and you would mail it special handling. And that meant, might get there in two or three days. But that was, it wasn't like an overnight stuff. Right. And so that meant for all young guys, you had to live in the city. I lived in Brooklyn, I lived in Queens, I lived in Manhattan. It was great because I, it meant I came into the office at, at Marvel. I'd bring my pages in. And you also you saw the pages. All these other guys were bringing in. I, I, will, I will use one example, which is, is from the Distinguished Competition, but it does indicate what it was like. When I first got into comics, Bernie Wrightson, whose work you may know, was doing Swamp Thing. And it was beautiful. Young Lee was writing it. Bernie drew it. And they, we used to go in, and I'd meet Howard Chaik, and I'd meet Bernie and Alan Weiss, all the guys we'd, we'd all be working, we'd all live in the area. And one time I went in, and Bernie, we all were doing our work, and we were like, oh, this is not too bad. I, you know, I kind of got this page right. Came in, Bernie had a splash page from Swamp Thing, maybe four, as a Wolfman, and it was just full of zip tone and tone. It was a beautiful, and it just, you went, oh my God. And you said, oh, I've got to go home and work hard. 
And that was true at Marvel as well. I saw stuff at Marvel. I, and there you'd see, you'd see Gil Kane work, you'd see Jack Kirby work, you'd see all the stuff that was coming in, old stuff, new stuff, all, all old by old, older artists. And it was fantastic. And it was really, it was, it was uplifting, it was depressing, it was everything it could be to make you want to be better for about, you know, 20 bucks a page or whatever you're getting paid back then. A little more than that, not a lot of work. And in the early days, there were no royalties. So it was really just one, a flat rate per page. But it was very exciting. And this was exciting, especially it was good to see the originals, because they got put on newsprint and pretty mediocre printing back in those days. So when you could see the originals and you saw them big, maybe about 10 by 15, it was electrifying to see that work. So as a freelancer, it was exciting when you went in and after you got your pages done, I would hang out in Ralph Macchio's office. Ralph was my editor on Thor for much of it, or Mark Grunwald, God rest his soul. I hung out there a lot. And we just killed time, shot the breeze, talked about everything, went out and saw movies. I saw I saw my first Kung Fu movie, The Five Fingers of Death, I think it was called. It was like Times Square back when Times Square wasn't owned by Disney, and it was a really easy <laughs> place to be. But I went with a whole bunch of my friends, a bunch of us from comics, all went to go see it, and we all went bananas because we'd never seen anything like it. So that was comics at that time. For me, it was not only... It was an education, it was a social group, it was a profession. It was just a great place to be. And when you go in and walk around the bullpen, see pages that guys were working on, talk to guys like John Romita, who you know you learn stuff from, it was just great. It was a great time to be in comic books right then in the this is me like about the, the late 70s, very early 80s. So that's what being in comics was like. That was like being at Marvel. Up at Marvel's, like especially at Marvel, they had a long, for a while, they were on Park Avenue South, a long wall of offices, all of whom had glass, and they would do stuff. It was goofy. So there was a great caricature of Ralph Macchio that somebody, maybe Marie, had done, and they had left off the nose. So it was a draw your own nose on Ralph Macchio. So we all drew our own noses on, and they were all taped up to the glass wall. And every so often, Jim Galton, who was the president, CEO of Cadence that owned Marvel, would come down out of the, I'm going to say the ninth floor, to the sixth floor, and he would, I can't do Jim, but he would sputter and get, get clear all this stuff, we're in business, get all this stuff out of here. And all this stuff would come down, and within about two weeks, all the new stuff would be all up again, because it was comic books. So that was the way it was. It was kind of wild, independent, fairly free form, and it made doing the work that much more exciting. So. It was a great place to work. Chris, you started uh, at the bottom and then worked your way up to editorial eventually, aside from all the writing on, on the various titles. What was it like for you st stalking the hollow halls of Marvel back in the day? hundred bucks a week. <laughs> that was so cool. A hundred bucks a week. No, no, this is when rent was a hundred bucks a month. Trust me. New York was an, how should we put it, exciting. If you've ever seen Panic in Needle Park documentary, Gino <laughs> says, I walked up Broadway in the 70s and the 70s. Ugh. Some of you are too young. Anyway, <laughs> the weirdest thing is I start out as, as an assistant editor in the black and white department. And one day, I'm, I'm there for like two weeks. I'm working part time because you know, Marvel was not flush with cash, even then. And suddenly, where's the editor? Oh. Hi, Stan. Oh, oh, you, you still here? Where's the editor? Uh, she's on vacation. <clears throat> this book's ready to go out. Yeah, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. There's only 28 pages. It's a 75 page book. I'm sorry. And slams it down on the desk and says, what the? Dickens is this? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Not the right answer at all. Stan has a minimal tolerance for, how shall we say, ignorance, stupidity, not being on top of the situation. So he said, in my office. I thought, oh God, I'm here two weeks, I'm gonna get fired. He said, bring the book. So he sat down in his office, he said, what's this? I don't know. Well, you've got these pictures here, what do they mean? I don't know. Well, you've got one on each page, that's ridiculous. Well, here, here, here. 
and for the next three hours, I got a crash tutorial in how to edit a book. Turns out, the designer had designed this elegant, beautiful, the pictures were all full-page layouts. Stan looked at it and said, that's, how should we say, inappropriate. He used a much more fundamental phrase. <laughs> um, uh, having to do with recycling. And we put together, you know, what's this article? Who are these people? Never tell him I don't know. So we rebuilt the whole magazine and put it together as an 85-page book with articles, multiple pictures, everything else. And then he said, okay, we'll send it out. But the point was, Stan, just because he was the boss, didn't mean he didn't know how to run things. It meant he could walk in, see what was wrong, take you, sit you down, fix it, know exactly how to fix it, and expect you to remember this next time so you wouldn't have to bug him about it. You would just get it right and move on. The thing with Stan was that I learned quickly when he was boss, and Roy Thomas exemplarized after he took over from Stan, is I'm giving you a book to write. Your job is to write it. Get it in on time. Don't be a pain in the ass. Try to make it sell. Oh yes, and try to make it good. We'll settle for two out of three. If it does that, I don't want to hear from you. If you don't do that, you're fired. You were given responsibility for your work. You were expected to do your work. Stan wasn't going to look over your shoulder because he had more important things to do, like keeping the company alive. And you grew up as a creator, and you grew up as a professional. And you had Stan setting the example every step of the way. And I have to say, honestly, on one level, the saddest moment for me was him moving out to LA because that meant all the fun was going to the movie industry who Stan was gonna like revolutionize, which he ultimately did even though it took 25 years. <laughs> and a couple of billion dollar films. But the office was never the same without it. And for me as a creator, those first days, those first years were the most freewheeling, exciting, balls to the wall, adventure imaginable. And that's that's a delight I'll take with me as long as I can get away with it. And thank you. Angeles now for, I don't know, 20, 25 years, 30, I don't know how long, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> Those days at Marvel with people like you were the best, most creative days of my whole life. Being out in Los Angeles, it's a different thing. It's, yeah, you're creative, you're working on movies and television, but it's not the same, a little group of people fighting the big guys and beating them. We beat DC right down the line. And we were owned by a couple of petty pitching guys. I forgot who they did. There was something about those days when you were there, that I will never forget. We had the most talented staff of artists and writers you could find anywhere. All you had to do was look at the books and you could see that. And I was the luckiest guy in the world that we were able to hire these people and hold on to them because we didn't have big money bags to pay them out of. Everybody at Marvel really worked there because they loved what they were doing and they loved the result of what they were doing when they saw those magazines come out. And there was their name next to story or artwork or whatever it was. Well, that was one thing we did. I always wanted the books to be like the credits in a movie. Let people know who did what. So we even put the letter's name down in every story, as I remember. 
And of course, then I gave everybody a nickname, oh, but that, that goes on. But the point is that those days with you guys, they'll never be duplicated, ever. Hollywood is a different thing. It's mostly business with a little bit of creative stuff. We were mostly creative stuff with business that we couldn't avoid. <laughs> with the other talented people that work, that work for him and gives him a lot of credit. I will say that in some ways Stan led by example. I got a story from Archie Goodwin. The late Archie was one of the best editors and writers comic books ever had as far as I He's a good friend of mine, but I think it's still true. And Archie worked at Marvel. And back in, when was the giant blackout on the East Coast? 65? Oh, there in the fall, 65. That was before I was in comics. I was just reading Marvel at the time. But Archie was in comics then, doing work for Marvel. And they had the blackout. New York was totally blacked out. And of course, people had, there were some manual typewriters, but they were electric typewriters, stuff like that. And Archie said, yeah, he and all the other writers, I won't name any names, all the other writers that were going, oh wow, blackout, cool. We don't have to do any work tonight. How can we possibly get anything done? There's no power. So they all came in the next day with nothing done. And Stan comes in, we were on the island back then, somewhere, we're from wherever you were living. And Stan comes in and he's got, I don't know, 18 pages written of some script. He put up candles and wrote that night while everybody else was goofing off in the dark. We needed it. Well, I'm sure you did, but everybody else went, oh, nobody wanted to look him in the eyes. So, but that's what Stan was like. That was that kind of stuff. You just, you get out there and you do the job and you do it regardless. And that's what, when I talked about Marvel earlier and how much fun it was, I see that as really Stan's legacy, even though he wasn't around that much by then. The kind of Marvel I was talking about was still pretty freewheeling, bigger, but still pretty freewheeling. And I think that was one of Stan's major legacies to Marvel at the time. It was just great. I think, just to add to that, I think many of us think we are really cool writers. I can do cool stuff. Yeah, maybe. But this is the thing with Stan. He could write. He could edit. He could run the company. He could do PR. He could art direct. He could do, I suspect if anyone asked him, he could probably hit the ball out of the park four times out of five during a World Series. <laughs> the thing with Stan is he could do everything pretty much better than everybody who worked for him. And much as we, our egos tried to make us ignore it, we all knew it. And so, like it or not, he led by example. And the example was always there for showing us the best, the most creative, the most dynamic way of doing it. And that's something you cannot, you cannot ever repay, but it, is an, it, it drives us all on. I didn't know that this meeting would be talking about me and my career. <laughs> <laughs>
wife has made me very happy. The people I have worked with have made me so indescribably happy. I was so lucky to be able to get people who were so talented. And you know, people who are very talented, I find, are the easiest to work with because they don't spend all their time trying to prove anything. They know what they can do. They know how good they are. And if you don't appreciate them, the hell with you, they'll work for somebody who will. And, which is the way it should be. So, the luckiest thing with me, because your work is really your life, I mean, I, I'm always working. If you can work with people you respect, and people you can learn from, don't think I didn't learn things from these guys and the other guys there. You see how they create a story. You see how they lay out a story when they're drawing it. See, as art director, I also was very interested in the way the stories were drawn. And everything interested me, like even the word balloons. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I would always tell the letter of where the word balloon went. And when I wrote the dialogue, if an illustration was really interesting, I put very little dialogue so that the reader could enjoy the illustration. If it was kind of dull or too talkative, I'd throw all the dialogue balloons in there, you know? And the dialogue balloons had to be in the right spot on each panel, so it was a nice composition. I found out at the other companies, they just give the script to a letter and say, illiterate. No, I, I would indicate every bit of dialogue where it went. I'd put the little balloon in the panel. So by having artists and writers and letterers who were so good that my only job was to make sure that the public, that the reader, would see how good they were. I owed it to them to present the stuff that they did as beautifully as possible. And a lot of people just read a comic and they're just reading a story. And they don't realize how much went into it on the part of the artist and the writer and perhaps the editor too in making sure that that story is worth reading and worth thinking about and making you want to read the next one. Well, you know all that. I don't, I'm, I'm saying things that you all know. How did I get started on that anyway? <laughs> anyway, I love you guys, that's it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if there was ever to be, and, and in, the, in the age of Disney Marvel, they got enough money to do it, if there was ever to be a Mount Rushmore of Marvel creators, you're looking at three of the heads on it. Give it up. He's a big Washington lawyer, very important Washington lawyer, and he seems to think that I'm really terrific. So one day for a present, he sent me a photograph of the heads on Mount Rushmore, and he had some photographer dub in my face next to them. So according to this photograph, I'm on my Mount Rushmore, and I am such a phony, I have copies of it all over my office. <laughs> <laughs> ingenious American creators, people that uh, added something, not just to uh, our culture here in this country, but worldwide, man. Hands down, it's you. Knowing you all this time, knowing your work first, and knowing you personally in real life has been a great privilege of mine, sitting here today, watching you get your own day is one of the greatest things that I've done all year long. I love you to death. I'm so glad you exist. Give it up for the legends.
vamos a llegar al cerrado. Oye, ha aguantado, ¿eh? 